Our reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The word of the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest and most famous teaching of Jesus in the Bible. Last week, we had an introduction on the kingdom of God because it's such a central uh, theme in the Sermon on the Mount. This week, we're beginning to study the sermon proper. And we're actually going to spend the next several weeks looking at this passage that Carrie just read. It's known as the Beatitudes. Even if you don't know much about the Bible or aren't all that familiar with Jesus, chances are you've probably heard at least some of these phrases before. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Famous words, but what do they mean? We have to get this right because if we don't get the Beatitudes right, we won't be able to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We will miss the life and the transformation that Jesus is offering us. So let's do our best to get this right. And here's why this is so important. Um, as we look at our world right now, as we make our way through life in the year 2020, uh, are you concerned about the state of our world? I'm sure we've all seen the pictures of uh, the West Coast with the orange and red skies filled with smoke from the fires that are ravaging uh, California and Oregon and Washington. Those pictures are like a picture of, of, of our whole world right now. It feels like the whole world is going up in flames. No matter where you're at culturally or religiously or politically or socially, uh, we all know that this world is profoundly broken. It's never been clear to us. And we desperately, desperately long for a different world. We are desperate for a different world. But here's the question that I believe Jesus is really pressing into us in the Sermon on the Mount. And this question has been weighing on me all year long. As desperate as we are for a different world, are we more desperate for God? As desperate as we are for a different world, are we more desperate for God. Because here's the problem. In our rush to change the world, in our mad frenzy of action, whether in politics or in the culture wars or on social media or in the race debate or in the streets of our city, in our mad frenzy to change the world, who are we becoming? 
because whatever action we take to shape our world is the result of who we are. So what's shaping you? What's shaping you? The, the, the world, that, the kind of world that we make is the inevitable result of the kind of people we, be, we become. Who are we becoming? We can be so focused on changing the world that we neglect first changing ourselves. Because here's the reality. A different world requires different people. A different world requires different people. There will never be a different world until and unless we are first becoming different people. Do you want to be different? And I don't just mean different for the sake of being different, cool, countercultural, authentic, unique, whatever it may be. I mean, do you want to be different because you have a deep, um, pressing sense in the very center of your life that your life, your very being is not what it ought to be and it breaks your heart. The Sermon on the Mount is inviting us to be a different people. A different world requires different people. How does that happen? Are you desperate for God? As much as we're desperate for a different world, are you more desperate for God? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is inviting us into a new identity. But how does that happen? In the Beatitudes, he shows us that it begins with God. The sermon that's all about who we're becoming begins with what God is doing. What does that mean? Let's find out by just beginning our study of the Beatitudes by asking three questions. What is God doing? Who is he doing it for? And how does God do it? What is God doing? Who is he doing it for? And how does he do it? Okay, first, what is God doing? Jesus begins the whole sermon with this very famous verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember we just said, we will not be able to understand the Sermon on the Mount unless we understand the Beatitudes. And we will not be able to understand the Beatitudes unless we understand the very first word in the Beatitudes. When Jesus says blessed, what does he mean by that word? You up for a little um, Greek lesson? The word that Jesus uses here, the Greek word is makarios. Can we all say that together? Makarios. You guys sound great. Now, makarios is a really unique word. I know that our Bibles translate this word um, blessed, but this is not the normal word for blessed in the Bible. It's, it's a word that's really hard, actually, to translate into English because we really don't have an English word that is the exact equivalent of makarios. Uh, maybe the nearest word that we have is something like congratulations. You know when something wonderful happens to you? You, uh, you have a baby, or you get a raise, or you get married, or you graduate from high school or college. When fortune smiles on you, what do we say? Congratulations. Or we might say, good for you. Not in a cynical, nefarious way, but, but in the most sincere way possible. Good for you. Or as our friends in Australia say, good on you, Mike. Good on you. Or there's a Welsh phrase that means, may your world be lit light. May your world be lit light. You put all of that together, and that's what makarios means. Congratulations. Now, why are congratulations in order? Well, if you'll notice, one of the, um, the, the uh, things about the Beatitudes is that in every single one of the Beatitudes, there's a promise attached with every single one of them. 
But uh, so in this one, it's the kingdom of heaven. But you'll also notice that in most of the Beatitudes, the, the promises are all future tense. So it says they will be comforted or they will see God or they will inherit the earth. But here in, in this beatitude, Jesus says there is the kingdom of heaven. It's present tense. There is the kingdom of heaven right now. Now this is reminding us of something we saw last week when we were studying the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, what is that? The kingdom of God is God exercising his kingly power to rescue us from our enemies of sin, evil, sickness, and death, and to renew the whole material creation. In other words, the kingdom of God is not only about God redeeming individual souls. The vision of the kingdom is not God destroying this world and carrying individual souls away to some disembodied heaven. No, the kingdom is God renewing this material world by uniting it with heaven. It's a new world. It's a world made new. It's the different world we're all seeking, a world made new. But it's not just a world made new, you know, like a piece of uh, furniture that gets reupholstered. It's, it's made new. Actually, it's transformed beyond anything we could begin to imagine. It's, be, it's transformed beyond the ability to imagine. So for instance, in Psalm 96, it's talking about what happens when God comes to renew the material creation. And it says that when God comes to renew the world, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. When God comes to renew the world, the trees of the forest are gonna sing for joy. Now, what does that mean? Some of you might say, well, it's poetry. It's just a symbol. Yeah, Every symbol is always pointing to some kind of reality. What is this pointing to? Because whatever this is pointing to, it's saying that when God comes to renew the world, then, then the whole material creation, the whole cosmos is going to come alive in such a way that what it is now is nothing more than a, a caterpillar compared to a butterfly. So we put all of this together right here in the very first beatitude. Jesus is saying, Congratulations, because the healing, rescuing, renewing power of God that one day is going to renew the entire cosmos, that healing, rescuing, renewing power is coming into your life right now and beginning to heal you and renew you and transform you right now. Do you realize what this means? A different world requires different people. This is how it happens. This is the beginning of spiritual transformation. A different world requires different people. This is how it happens. It's, it's the kingdom of God. It's the power, the presence, the very life of God himself coming into your life and bringing healing and renewal and transformation to your life right now. It's not us going out to make a new world. It's the new world coming into us, coming into you. And notice something else about this. There are a lot of spiritualities out there that will tell you that the divine life, the divine spark is something that exists already inside every single one of us and that all we really need to do is, is awaken to it, to realize that, to tap into this, the divine life that already exists inside every single one of us. Jesus is saying no. That, that we don't need a bolster or a supplement to just boost something that we already have, some divine life that already exists inside of us. No, he says, the kingdom of God is the power of God coming into your life, giving you something that you don't have and that you desperately need. 
And that leads to our next point. We've just seen what is God doing, but secondly, we need to see who's he doing it for? In the Sermon on the Mount, and especially here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving us what we could call an aspirational identity. What's what's an aspirational identity? Those of you in marketing already know what I'm talking about. Um, You know, whenever a company wants to sell you a product, they're never just selling you a product. They're never just saying, here's the product, here's why it's great, you should buy it. They're never just selling you a product. When you see an ad on TV or on social media or on the internet, they're never just selling you a product, they're selling you an identity. So it's this pair of jeans or this style of eyeglasses or this uh, piece of technology or this skincare cream or this mindfulness app or this video game or this matcha powder or this inflatable dog collar or whatever it is. They're never just selling you a product. They're selling you an identity so that if you wear this clothing or buy this product or subscribe to this service or adopt this lifestyle or vote for this candidate or devote your life to this cause, then you will be a winner. You will be in the inner ring, someone in the know. You'll be one of the ones who gets it. Especially since we live in a culture that is obsessed with identity and especially we are obsessed with an identity that helps us feel good about ourselves. We wanna be winners. So here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving us his list of the winners. Congratulations, right? So we should want to be on Jesus's list of the winners. But when we look at Jesus's list, we're like, I'm not so sure I want to be on that list. Because Jesus's list is everybody the world wouldn't call winners. It's everyone the world would call losers, zeros, nobodies. So in the very first Beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Now, what does poor in spirit mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. First, it does not mean virtue. By, almost by default, when we read poor in spirit, most people, uh, almost immediately we say, well, poor in spirit is just another way of talking about humility. So, you know, especially in our culture, humility is a virtue. We say, oh, that's a good thing. We want to be virtuous. Poor in spirit means humble. That's not what Jesus means. There is a very common word for humility that Jesus could have used. He doesn't use that word. The word he uses is poor. And even the word poor, there was actually a couple of different words for poor that Jesus could have used. One of them means working class poor. So they're not rich, they're not middle class, they're working class. But working class people, they work hard to scrape by right? Still virtuous. But even that is not the word that Jesus uses. The word he uses is a word that means destitute. It's a word that means abject poverty of the most desperate kind. It means dirt poor. It means you have nothing. Now, let's ask the question, who thinks poverty is a virtue? Be careful. It's easy for us to idealize the poor, right? Oh, they're so humble and virtuous. Yes, it's possible that poverty can produce virtues like humility, but don't confuse the condition of poverty with virtues that it may or may not produce. There is nothing virtuous or good or desirable about the condition of abject poverty. And understand something else. Jesus is also not saying that God blesses us because we are aware of how spiritually poor we are. 
I mean, if that's what we think, all we're doing is, is we're, um, we're taking our insight, our wisdom, our awareness of our spiritual reality and turning that into a virtue so that we say, oh, I'm one of the ones who gets it. I am aware of my spiritual poverty, not like those losers who don't get it. See, when we want to be winners, we want to be virtuous, we don't want to be losers. So when Jesus tells us that we're poor in spirit, we, we are desperate to squeeze any kind of virtue out of that that we possibly can. But poor in spirit simply means exactly what it sounds like, that in and of ourselves, we have absolutely no spiritual resources. I mentioned Dallas Willard last week. Dallas Willard was one of the greatest Christian writers and spiritual masters of the 20th century. Uh, when I was a brand new Christian in the late 90s, um, he came out with a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And the central part of that book really is, uh, he, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. That book transformed my life when I was a brand new Christian. And in that book, Dallas Willard gives us a paraphrase of this first beatitude. He says, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp, of religion. That means that our state, the state of our soul before God, is one of utter, total lack, poverty, emptiness, and need. And that's hard for us. We struggle with that. And one of the main reasons we struggle with this so much is because poverty of any kind is always attached to shame. So for instance, I read a, a book many years ago that um, begins with interviews of people who are economically poor, and ask them to describe their experience of poverty. So um, this is what they say about their experience of poverty. Here's someone from Moldova who says, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. No one needs us. We're like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Or here's someone from Guinea-Bissau who says, when I don't have any food to bring my family, I borrow, mainly from neighbors and friends. I feel ashamed standing before my children when I have nothing to help feed the family. It's terrible. Or here's what someone from Latvia says, during the past two years, we have not celebrated any holidays with others. We cannot afford to invite anyone to our house, and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves one depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. Now, do you notice what all of these statements have in common? They're really not talking about money at all. All of them are, de are describing their inner experience of shame and the brokenness of their relationships. That's what they're all talking about. So when Jesus calls us poor in spirit, we run from that because we can't bear the shame. When God created the first human beings, I don't know if you're familiar with the story in, um, in Genesis 1 and 2, but it says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. But then Genesis 3, when they rebelled against God, it says they realized they were naked. And, and do you know what they did? It says they hid. They hid from God. They hid from themselves. Friends, confronting our spiritual nakedness, confronting our spiritual poverty, it, it, it's too shameful for us. 
It, and so we run, we hide. We hide from God, we hide from ourselves, we hide from others. We'd rather be middle class in spirit or even working class in spirit because at least working class people, you know, they do what they gotta do to get by. There's nobility and dignity in that. But being poor in spirit, that feels like death. It feels too shameful. We can't bear it. But those are the people to whom Jesus says, congratulations, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Friends, different world requires different people. This is where it begins. Do you want to be different? This is the beginning of spiritual transformation. It means just sitting in our need. It means feeling our emptiness and our poverty and our lack and our our desperate destitution before God without turning that experience into a virtue. This is the beginning of spiritual transformation, even and even especially if you're a Christian, that we all need this desperately to feel our desperate need of God. Are we desperate for God? This is what we need, and it leads to our last point. We've seen what God is doing. We've seen who he's doing it for. But lastly, how does he do it? The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus unfolding his vision for human flourishing. Basically, Jesus is telling us how to live. But here's what I want us to see about this. In the Bible, um, almost, um, almost without fail, almost every single time that God is going to tell his people how to live, The normal pattern is that first God tells his people what he's already done for them. Only then does he tell them how to live. The normal pattern in the Bible when God is going to tell people how to live is that first he tells them what he's done for them. Only then does he tell them how to live. One of the most famous examples of this is the Ten Commandments. And if you think about the Ten Commandments, we think, oh, that's like the most famous example of where God is telling people how to live. The Ten Commandments. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to live. But when you read the story, when you read how God does it, what what happens? First, God rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Then he brings them into the wilderness. He brings them to Mount Sinai and the presence of God comes down on the mountain. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. He's going to tell them how to live. But before God tells them even the first word of the first commandment, what's the very first thing he says? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then and only then does he say, you shall have no other gods before me. Friends, this is the pattern of the gospel, and it's the exact opposite of traditional religion. Traditional religion always begins, it says, here are the rules. Here's how you're supposed to live. And if you do a good job, then God will love you and bless you. The gospel is the exact opposite of that because the gospel says God has already begun to heal you and rescue you and renew you and get to work in your life. And therefore, here's how you should live as a response to that, as a result of that. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus is doing here in the Beatitudes. As we go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that Jesus has a lot to tell us about how we should live But is that where he begins? No. Before Jesus ever gives us one word of command, he gives us a word of congratulations. The healing, rescuing, renewing power of God is is coming into the midst of your spiritual poverty to begin healing you and transforming you and enriching you right now. How can Jesus do that? Here's how. 
Friends, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving us a new identity. Really, he's giving us a picture of the ideal life, but what a picture. Nobody in their right mind would would want this picture for an ideal life. Nobody, that is, except for Jesus. Because Jesus isn't just giving us a picture of our identity here. He's giving us a picture of his identity. Because here's the question, how can you and I, um, the poorest of the poor, how can we be made rich in the kingdom presence of God? The only way is for Jesus, the true king, to empty himself of his riches and become poor for you. Because Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, who is the very source of all true riches, of true spiritual riches, true spiritual abundance, Jesus Christ When he came to earth and became a human being, he emptied himself of his riches and became poor for you. The only reason that Jesus can give you a new identity is because on the cross, Jesus Christ identified with us in our poverty. You know, we live in a culture that that runs away from shame. We run away from spiritual poverty because we can't bear the shame. And so in our culture, we say that the antidote for shame is, well, we have to feel good about ourselves. So the antidote to shame is, is affirm yourself. Affirm yourself. But if you've ever tried to do that, just affirm yourself, you know it never really works, does it? Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ was stripped naked. He, was, he endured all of our shame. He took all of the shame of our poverty, our need, our helplessness, our emptiness. He took all of the shame of that on his shoulders in order that we could experience the sheer delight of a loving father who sees how messy we are, sees how helpless we are, sees how incompetent we are, and and, and delights to pour out his love on us, not in spite of how messy and helpless and incompetent we are, but all the more because of it. He delights to pour out his heart and his love on you. But the only way we can um, receive it is if we know we need it. Friends, uh, the gospel begins with our desperation for God. Spiritual transformation begins with our desperation for God. As long as you cling to your virtue, cling to your goodness, as long as we insist on being not poor in spirit, but at least working class in spirit, as long as we insist on having something to bring to the table before God, then we will never be able to receive the life and the riches and the kingdom and the healing and renewal that God wants to give to you. The only way we'll be able to receive it is if we know that we need it, if we're desperate for us. So if you're exploring who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, friends, this is where spiritual transformation begins. That means that you don't need to bring your virtue, your goodness. You don't need to bring any spiritual competence or adeptness. All you need to bring is your need. And if you are a Christian, Sometimes it's easy for us to think that, you know what, by now, I, you know, I, I should have some credit with God. It's, it's very difficult for us to, to say, well, are we really supposed to be this needy still? Are we still supposed to be this helpless? We feel like after following Jesus for a handful of years or for a handful of decades that that by now we shouldn't still be this needy. But friends, Christians more than anyone else are desperately in need of God. The moment we stop feeling our desperate need for God is the moment that God starts slipping away. We all need this. Friends, a different world requires different people. The beginning of spiritual transformation is, are you desperate for God? Are you desperate 
for him. We will never see a different world until we become different people. This is how it happens. Do you feel your need of Jesus this morning? Do you know that you have a need this morning? Feel your need of Jesus and allow him to supply, richly supply your need this morning. Let's pray. Abba, Father, probably the most difficult thing in the world for us is is not facing how broken and ruined the world is, but facing how broken and ruined we are. Father, there's so much shame and pain and trauma connected with that. Father, we pray this morning, I pray this morning that you would help us to see that that is not your creational intention for us, that you created us in your image with inherent goodness and worth and value and dignity, but, but through our rebellion against you, Lord, um, we have fallen into spiritual poverty and ruin. And we pray this morning that, that we would take that first step once again back into spiritual renewal by just simply reclaiming our dependency, our desperate need for you. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, you would come and you would meet us, meet every single person this morning in the midst of that desperate need, and that you would begin once again that work of spiritual renewal in our lives. And Father, we pray as we go throughout the rest of this Sermon on the Mount that you would help us more and more um, to experience our need of you and to experience your great gracious provision of our need in Jesus Christ. For we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.